Hello and welcome to episode 19, 19. of our podcast. Uh, my name is Elliot Greenman. I'm Alexia Nell. And this week's podcast, we talk about, uh, we start going through the list of conditions that the ASA, the Advertising Standards Agency, say that osteo, uh, osteopaths are allowed to advertise that they can treat. And the first three were arthritic pain, circulatory problems and, and cramp. And yeah, it's um, always interesting um, to actually talk about what we can do, really, basically. And it's a great opportunity to um, talk about the framework osteopathy uh, uses, basically. And maybe we expand on the biopsychosocial model sometimes and the ITIS, basically. Because I love ITIS. It's a brilliant thing. Yeah, share a few, if you like. Um, yeah. comment and uh, interact with us um, uh, it's a great uh, social thing to do Perambulations in Franglais So le conditions that the Advertisement Standards Agency uh have published to say that you are allowed to advertise that you can treat. Mm -hmm. We did some videos on this before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's an awesome uh, tool, really, because, um, again, it's another limitation, really. So um, being told what is it you can treat is really important, especially for the public, really. And it's uh, really broad because they talk a lot about pain, basically. So mm. neck pain, back pain, sciatica, which is like pain. And think so. I think the main thing we talk about in those podcasts is itis. I love itis because it's or itises, itises. <laughs> so the like suffix of all the different pathologies is finishing by itis. So there's some degree of inflammation and some degree of pain associated with it. Really, basically. So if you if it's a epicondyloitis. It's the outside or the inside of your elbow, which is inflamed and painful, basically, and swollen and red. And how come we can make it better? I think that's where the whole jig comes into play, really. And we hope to maybe talk about, again, about the osteopathic principles and trying to treat people as a unit and as a unity and mind mind and body some people will talk about soul as well but i tend to do mind and body only because i'm quite limited and leave the soul to other people who are much better than me at, at it and there's the rule of the artery being supreme so we look at all the blood supply and a normal blood supply and a disrupted blood supply and its effect so the inflammation has gone to have a disrupted blood supply somehow And um, there's a structure and a function which tend to be interrelated with each other, basically. And so the shape of your radial head at your elbow is enabling the pronation and supination because it's a flat and round structure, basically. Compared to your ulna with your humerus, it's actually just a hinge, the way it's actually done. So you can't really turn your ulna, but you can turn your radius, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the way you use your forearm is going to be dictated with the shape of certain structures, basically of bony structures and muscular 
things, basically, like tendons and muscles. So that's, yeah, that's where we can all go and we can go through the list of different uh, conditions, but it's mostly a disrupted blood supply and maybe a disrupted structure which influences the, the function or an abnormal function which actually ends up disrupting the structure. If that makes sense. And then with the, yeah, and then with that, you, or those, isn't there another, so there's three osteopathic principles. Yeah, three is pretty good. Already, if you do those ones, those three ones. The rule of the artery is supreme. Yeah. Structure and function are interrelated and you treat the body as a unit. You treat people as a unit, mind and body. People say talk about soul, but I don't. I noticed from when I looked at this yeah. earlier on today, I don't know, I don't think they've necessarily updated it. I just think there were some that we probably decided to Not leave to, out because yeah, they're, yeah. they're so broad. And one that's was it. generalized aches and pains. That's it, that's it, that's so it. So that is, that is a incredibly... Considering they've they've given a list, that's like a really that's that's so broad. They're trying to limitate what we can treat, but we can treat general aches and pains. <laughs> so it's interesting to have limitations that are so broad as mm -hmm. well. It doesn't, yeah. Well, after that, the thing about having a, somebody who's a bit knowledgeable about things who tend to maybe look at what is more likely to be the reason why there is residual tension and you're not able to actually release it mm. very well. So mm. uh, there's no specification whether it's like an uh, emotional tension or a physical tension and whether it's a physical pain or an emotional pain. I guess we can. That could be quite a good podcast for six hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's great to have a list of things and people can maybe mm. relate to those kind of stuff. And it's, yeah. Should we start at the top? And then yeah, go, yeah, yeah. Go, go down. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Arthritic pain. Well, yeah, arthritis. So that's a, a bit the whole problem because there's... Um, There's seronegative arthritis, there's rheumatoid arthritis, and there's osteoarthritis. And they all cause pain, but they've got different uh, etiology, basically. So it's a bit difficult to know what arthrit arthritic pain is on about, basically. But it's an itis, and when there's an itis, the blood supply to the area is affected and it leads to, in the case of a rheumatoid arthritis, your, the capsule of the joint, the wrapping, the inner wrapping of the joint gets really inflamed, basically, and the extra uh, blood supply to it. And there tends to be an exudate, which is like a the blood tends to, the blood vessel tends to leak extra fluid, which actually makes the swelling part of the, of the tissue. And it's called diapedesis. So there's actually possibility for white blood cells to actually uh, come out in case of an infection or something like that, really. Okay. And there's cytokine. There's, antibodies, there's all sorts of structures that are going to be um, creating the inflammation and is going to lead to an excess in metabolic uh, uh, rate and um, 
uh, more metabolic waste and the metabolic waste tend to actually stimulate the nerve endings basically and that's what in that case of rheumatoid arthritis causes the pain basically um in terms of osteoarthritis there's a slight change of the structure of the joint which actually has lead or to do with a diminishing of the joint space because the uh, articular cartilage uh, widths or breadth tends to have diminished basically and therefore the joint space has uh, shrunk and therefore the mus muscle running across that joint tend to be a little bit shortened basically and it finds it difficult to actually release therefore it causes a bit more wear of that uh, articular surface when you use it because there's extra pressure on it basically and it leads to excess muscular tension and the excess muscular tension leads to uh, more muscular contraction the muscular contraction when running a bit into a bit of um, when it can't really relax and let go a little bit tends to lead to more lactic acid and the lactic acid is a metabolic waste and because there's too much tension doesn't really disappear very easily it simulates nerve endings and we got pain again <laughs> so you get to the same place just a different way a different way that's it that's it and but remember the pain here is just the physical pain okay because the, the main problem we have with pain and we've talked about that there's those three layers of pain basically so let's say you've got osteoarthritis into your elbow you need to and it's the part of your brain that tends to supply the nervous having the nervous supply of your elbow or the muscular activation of your elbow tends to be stimulated by the pain basically so it's sensitized and the thing is you use that part of your brain as well to think about moving your elbow so you don't have to move your elbow to use that the same part of the brain to be able to think about moving your elbow so because your elbow is painful the thing you do with your elbow are going to be more tricky And therefore, you might think that tomorrow is already pretty dire in light of how painful it is today because you're going to have to use your elbow to do things, basically. And that enhances the pain, basically. So in thinking about doing an action of using your elbow, let's yeah. say your tennis player, tennis yeah. elbow, all that's that it, classic. That, or golfer's elbow. And or, so in, yeah. in rehearsing almost, or, mm -hmm. or thinking about doing the action of playing golf, playing tennis, whatever mm -hmm. else tomorrow, mm -hmm. you're actually doubling down on the pain. Like the pain's going to become that much more amplified because, because you're using that same part of actually was practicing or rehearsing or thinking about doing the activity with your elbow as you are in actually doing that. Doing it, physically doing yeah. it. For, for real, okay? Mm -hmm. And there's a third level, which is a metaphorical representation of what the elbow does basically so the whole cognitive part uh, it's a bit rinse and repeat for the brain in a way so you don't want you don't want to have three different parts of the brain to deal with your elbow and whether you actually move it and get the sensory feedback or the motor input okay or whether you think about doing it or you think about doing the metaphorical so it's like a bit the storytelling behind it in a way so the whole neural pathway is going to be recruited for that for example so let's talk about the shoulder for example and because we were talking about the elbow and i'm going to avoid talking about that um 
Let's talk about the shoulder, and we talk about who is actually shouldering the world, in a way. And because that's what you do with your shoulder. That's what we, no, no, that's what humans do with their shoulders. They shoulder burdens, basically. So as soon as you actually have to move your shoulder, it's a bit painful. So that part is activated. As soon as you think about moving your shoulder, that part is activated on top of the fact that you've actually moved your shoulder and it was painful. And then, bizarrely, um, at the same time, you have to contend with uh, the burden you have in your everyday life, really, and the things you have to shoulder, or the thing you think you should not shoulder, and maybe others need to shoulder for you, or the thing you don't shoulder enough, or and you maybe others should maybe let you shoulder or all the rest okay because we are quite interesting for that and that enhances your pain even more so yeah that becomes quite an interesting process really yeah. there's a bit more to it really and knows that the same part of your brain who deals with that basically <laughs> that's just this is such a big idea isn't it it's such like a mm -hmm. It's the neuro, the latest neuro, because we do so much functional imaging of the brain and its activity. We can see. So somebody's got a bad hip and we put them in the MRI scan. You ask them to move their hip and then you can see the area in the brain firing because they're moving their hip. And then after you ask them to describe to you how did they get to the, how did they get to the MRI scanner from the waiting room? And they don't have to do it, but they've done it. And, or maybe to go back from the MRI scanner to the waiting room when they finished. So they have to imagine doing the whole thing. And they use, ah, oh, the same part of the brain that uses their hip. Because for, or unless you ask them to actually doing, walking on their hands, which is maybe not, <laughs> maybe not very common, yeah. basically. Okay. So most people are going to walk using their hip. And that's the thing. And then the hip on top of it, after you can, well, think about going forward. You can, that's what links a bit your leg to, to your waist. It's, um, yeah, going forward or backward. So if you're held a little bit and your hip flexor is a bit too short because there's some osteoarthritis into your hip and the joint space is diminished, your hip flexor is going to shorten. Therefore, your stride is not going to be as, um, forward and when you have to go from A to B so if you think about solving problem or doing list or trying to come up with a bit of a challenging kind of mental task like that well it's going to lead the same part of your brain that deals with your hip basically deals with the actual the physical movement of your hip the physical movement you thinking about it and then the metaphorical part it rinse and repeat so say I come to you with osteoarthritis in my hip mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I don't know you sit me down you I don't know if you do this for everyone when you start but you mm -hmm. ch tend to have a look at someone stood up and then sat down right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then you do a few other things to mm -hmm. figure out whatever it is you're figuring out yes. and, <laughs> yeah. and and then let's say like you you know that I've got osteoarthritis in, in my hip already. Mm -hmm. Maybe I've been um, put onto by by a doctor or something. Or, or yeah, yeah. Or you've, you've, or you've, you've, seen, you've had, you've had, had a, an X-ray exactly, or something yeah. like that. Um, uh, what what's like the first thing that you do? 
well, I need to ask you, what do you think is wrong with you, really? Mm -hmm. And after we need to try to agree that it's actually affecting what you do in your everyday life, really. Like going up the stairs or at night in your sleep and your activity, your hobbies, all the rest and things like that, really. So to make you realize that the way you use your hip is really affecting your everyday life, really. And you, maybe you're reframing a bit your belief that the osteoarthritis is the problem. Because actually osteoarthritis is completely normal. Because that's the sign of aging, basically. That's the main thing, really. So, so but, but some people to that wouldn't, wouldn't a lot of people say, oh, but that's, that's getting old. And then the pain that you're experiencing from that is just part of getting older. That's it. That's it. Exactly. So it's quite patronizing way. What do you expect? You're old. So that's what comes with being old, really. When actually it's not true at all. There's some old people who can put their feet behind their ears, really. They don't have a problem. And I wonder what the difference between them and you if you got osteoarthritis in your hip. Maybe every day, they actually try to contend with uh, loosening up their hip. And the main thing with your osteoarthritis in your hip is you've played, you've done repetitive things, you go on a golf course, and then you sit uh, on a chair in a, in a golf club having your little drink with your friends, and then you go in your car and you sit in your car, and then you come back home and you sit in your sofa, and then you, you sit at the table for dinner, and then you sit, and then, so you close your hip all the time, and you don't really stretch it, really. How is it you contend with the fact that there is limitation that is introduced into your hip? And that's the reason why osteoarthritis is such a problem. So I've come to you with osteoarthritis in my hip. Yeah. I've sat down. You've, yeah. you've seen where I'm short, long, whatever yeah, yeah. it is you do. Yeah. And we've discussed that maybe it's not the osteoarthritis that I'm, mm -hmm. the reason why I'm experiencing pain. The, why is the, managing, the management of the limitations that the osteoarthritis is bringing on you. Yeah. 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 The poor management, shall we say. Or the lack of. Or the, the lack of, lack yeah. Of, or, at, or, at this point. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then what do you do? Did you send me on my way with this new information? Like, off you go. No, no, I can I demonstrate. I demonstrate with you. Mm -hmm. I show you a few bits and a few ways. I try to loosen it up because me doing it with you is maybe 30 or 40% more efficient than you doing it on your own. So we kickstart you. We make you feel a little bit how it feels to actually do it in a way and where it feels it. So when you do it again, you can maybe decipher a bit that you're doing it properly or not. And then after we demonstrate it, at the end of the treatment, I show you a couple of stretches for the main limitation, basically. And then if you do it a little, well, it might help. And if you do it a little for a long time, it might help a lot, basically. And uh, from what we've spoken about arthritis before, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that osteoarthritis is... Uh, a degenerative I, condition, yeah. Yeah, but you can, can you bring it back a little bit? You uh, can, not, well, you can diminish the pressure, you can diminish the rate of wear into the joint. Okay. Yeah. But then rheumatoid arthritis, you can't, you can't, or? So rheumatoid arthritis is a bit different because there's an inf it's an inflammatory process and it's not, it's in the joint, but it's more on the capsule part of the joint, basically. Okay. And surrounding area and the wool inflammation part of it. Compared to with the osteoarthritis, there's no inflammation as such. It's just the wear part of it and the muscular tension that holds the two, the two parts of the joint together. 
basically. Okay. So with rheumatoid arthritis, it's a bit bit different because it's an inflammatory process and there's an autoimmune response basically so then we can we need to look a little bit at uh, stress response basically and your management of stress basically and your management of potentially um, yeah how is it you think about going forward in the world maybe if it's uh, rheumatoid arthritis into your hip or something like that really because that's a bit the way you're going to proceed with that. And now your immune system is actually attacking the cells of your um, capsule of, of the joint, basically. So there is an abnormal immune response and an abnormal immune cascade around certain joints, basically. Okay? And that's a, maybe a lack of cortisol or an DHEA or and other structures mm. there's an awful lot and that's to do with your autonomic load and because the adrenal gland is part of your autonomic nervous system and then we start to maybe able to talk about your expectation expectation fulfillment theory of dream and we start to talk about the way unfulfilled expectation tend to load your autonomic nervous system basically And after a, a repeated period of time, you tend to diminish how much cortisol and DHEA you can secrete on a daily basis. On, that's a, a chronic response to stress. Of course, if you break your arm or something like that, there'll be a spike in, in uh, cortisol to try to prevent the whole thing from happening too much, really. Okay? Because cortisol is stopping the inflammatory cascade. Otherwise, it's a runaway system. Mm -hmm. Okay, so steroids are very good, oh, and it gives that as a treatment to people who actually have rheumatoid arthritis. Instead of maybe talking about the way people manage their stress or alongside, alongside, alongside. So yeah, for, for an acute relief, so you get a bit less discomfort and things like that, we can give you some steroid or and there's like necrotizing factor inhibitors, there's all sorts of different uh, chemicals who are going to stop certain uh, chains of reaction, chains of like uh, immune response processes, basically. Okay, so because it's an autoimmune problem, you're attacking yourself, basically. But most of it is to do with your inability to manage your chronic, your chronic response to stress, basically. And that exhausts your adrenal gland. And that exhaustion of your adrenal gland leads to a lack of production of cortisol and DHEA. Cortisol is going to mostly deal with your humoral mediated immune system. And the DHEA is going to deal with the cellular mediated immune system. Mm. which is maybe rheumatoid mm. and a, a atopic thing like eczema and asthma and would asthma. be a little bit more uh, cortisol. So having loads of steroids for one for a long period of time during your life especially might not be mm -hmm. such a... So it's quite an interesting thing actually. We start to notice as a side effect of long-term use of steroids people developing rheumatoid problems. So people who've got atopic problems, for example, with their ventolin or things like that, or eczema, and they put 
Squall of Topical Steroid, thing like that, for humoral mediated problem. They supplement their cortisol. It tends to push the immune system into the DHEA part of it. And then they end up with maybe rheumatoid problem. And a lot of patients who have had a very long term, because now we start to see, because it's quite recent things, really. So when, uh, the uh, necrotizing factor inhibitors were not there 20 years ago. Or they were there, oh, I'm not too sure exactly the date, but let's say 30 years ago, 40 years ago, there was no, no none of those things, really, okay? So the people in there who had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis in the 60s, who were 18-year-old then, who were born in 1940, are now in their mid-70s, and they've had treatment uh, for a good 20 years of those kind of medication. And all of a sudden, we start to see they're starting to develop asthma or eczema because we've pushed a bit the immune system on one thing, and then again, the homeostatic uh, principle, so you need to try to find a balance, and then you provide something to your, the body, and it pushes the whole system to, in, the, other. to, the, to the other. It is quite an interesting thing. Cause it's, there's, it, no, um, there's just no get-out-of-jail-free card, really, is there for, for any of it? Oh, well, thank God we, live only, uh, we don't live 1,000 years. Because that would be much more relevant. Thank God we live only 70 or 80 years. That's really quite... And we've got quite good health in the West for a good 20 years. Most of us, of course, there's exceptions. You know, but yeah, the card out of jail is not such a problem too much, really. Because life's so short. Because life's so short for one individual. Mm. Nonetheless, uh, we, when we start to look at epigenetic uh, fact from an epigen epigenetic point of view, there's a generational type thing and the behavior you inherit from your parents and, their par and they've inherited from their parents and now you, per you carry on that behavior and now it actually pushes a bit certain traits, certain so, phenotypes, basically. It's almost like, uh, this is going off topic a little bit, but uh, Fraser, who I think you've met, an old chap with a big beard, one of my mates, he's a bit of like a... He's like similar age to you, like mid 40s. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a bit of a punk mm -hmm. and a little bit nihilist mm -hmm. and believes that when we die, like obviously we, we don't go anywhere. And, but he says, you, you know, you kind of die twice. You die the first time you actually die. Then the second time is the last time that someone on the planet mentions your name. It's mm -hmm. almost like you've got that second life or a legacy, dare I say. And it's like, it's, that's quite like a, interesting idea in itself but it's also quite an interesting idea when you start thinking about not so not so nihilistic then no <laughs> <laughs> i'm nihilistic but i believe in lots of things okay yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um that's why it's a slightly nihilistic because nihilistic because well <laughs> yeah, yeah, does yeah nihilism really exist i'm not sure but that's quite an interesting way to view your responsibility as a person mm -hmm. and what you're going to do and whether you're going to try and get your shit together mm -hmm. Because, you know, your kids, mm -hmm. it, they obviously, mm -hmm. people know that they depend on it. Mm -hmm. And, but also so do your grandchildren and mm -hmm. maybe even quite a bit further than that. Mm -hmm. And if you actually do something with your life as well, you never know where the ripple effect of that's going to go. Mm -hmm. So, and then obviously with health stuff like this, like mm -hmm. maybe it is good not to rely on a Ventolin all your life mm -hmm. and try and f figure out, mm -hmm. yeah. Or, or use Ventolin when it's absolutely needed. I think uh, you have to remember the experience asthmatic people are having about when you're having an asthma attack. And actually, it's a 
pretty scary thing and having the crutch of knowing you got that ventolin is actually a big relief really and I think a lot of people just the fact of knowing they don't have their ventolin in their in their bags mm -hmm. are actually a bit more nervous and, and then, and then, and then the they're more side, likely to get a bit of a asthma attack and things. Really. And then the flip side then knowing that they've got it in their pocket or in their mm -hmm. bag all the time they're mm -hmm. going to be a little bit more calm and it's probably going to prevent them, them from having, the having to even use exactly. it. Exactly. Mm. But ventolin is just one aspect of managing asthma because mm. basically when you have asthma yes you got a bronchodilation yes you can have a bit of an allergic and an inflammatory reaction yes you can have a bit of a cold and hot kind of change of temperature who triggers it but mostly it's you not breathing out Everything. enough so can you talk about that a little bit because i from uh taking up an old hobby of smoking mm -hmm. um over the last few months my breathing has been less good as mm -hmm. you can imagine and it's gone and then with the other plethora of issues that i always imagine that i have mm -hmm. and come to you with uh i've been thinking a lot again about that internal pressure because when i did the london marathon last year i got a hernia and my breathing wasn't great and i wasn't smoking at the time um, you mentioned a few times something about that internal pressure and it always feels to me like my with my breathing, it's almost like I can't, well, I do what you said, which is breathe all the way out all the time. It's actually quite mm -hmm. like it feels like I don't have any more pressure to push out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's quite tricky. It's a bit counterintuitive that um, the lung because actually there's a negative pressure within your lung. And that's what enables the, that's what enables the air to actually come in. So your plural space actually is a negative pressure space. And then therefore, if you relax enough, the wall, part of the breathing is to relax your, your rib cage in order for the air to freely come in. Because that's how it goes. Okay. And after you have to contract your rib cage in order to be able to exhale, 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 basically. Okay. And not the other way around. And then after there's accessory respiratory muscle into your neck. And then after there's your diaphragm, basically. And then there's a positive partial pressure in your abdominal cavity. Because your belly has got extra, extra pressure. All the organs inside your abdomen have got, ex have got positive pressure. There's more pressure than outside in your abdomen. And there's less pressure than outside in your lung. Okay. So, is there anything? So, your belly should be helping you to actually breathe out. And that's why we talk about abdominal breathing with the 7-Eleven breathing technique, where actually you breathe in into your abdomen in order to be able to expand your lung even better. So you're going to actually, using your diaphragm, you're going to actually diminish the pressure into your gut. <laughs> anyway, it's quite counterintuitive. But it's quite, it's very interesting. The, yeah, wool, yeah, the, um, wool, the wool breathing is quite a peculiar thing. We are not really, it's an automa automatic thing. It's like releasing... You don't, you, you sleep, you don't have to think about breathing. Okay. Apart from the old people who've got sleep apnea. Okay. And, or oh, not so odd because there's quite a lot of people out there who have, who have that kind of uh, symptom, basically. But a lot of it 
is automated. And it's like your pancreatic enzymes. You don't have to think about the stomach content of your falafel wrap in order to uh, know which how much protease and lipase and um, how much glucagon and insulin are going to have to be released in order to keep your sugar level. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's automated, basically, okay? But the powerful thing with the breathing is you can control it. So for all the people out there who think they don't have enough of the one thing they got a lot of, control is an interesting thing because you can control your breath, basically. And people who've got asthma, a lot of the time when they have an asthma attack, the main thing they talk to you about is being out of control, basically. Okay, That's how it feels. The mm. whole thing gets out of control when actually that's the one thing you have actually control over. Mm. Type thing, okay. Mm. So it's it's yeah. We can talk more about asthma at a later, a later stage because I think there's a, a minor respiratory issues, but that's more at the end of the list. I guess. Well, on, uh, yeah. So uh, that's good. That's another one we've uh, ticked. I don't think there is any. I, I was surprised. I don't think there's anything about respiratory issues. Oh my it? god. So maybe I, I don't have any Sorry, any right to we, actually talk about that. That's all right. We'll rewind and delete that bit. That you just okay, said then. Then. okay. Sorry about that. Mm. Maybe I should kneel. Can I talk? Can't see your face on the camera. Light at all? Light is halfway down there. Oops. I know. I, I didn't know what to say. I was like, I texted you. Like, see so if you saw your phone. It's not always. It's like quite often not on me anyway. So. I wasn't sure I was to move it, so... Okay. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm on camera now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you could probably go up and do a bit up there. Can I just push it like that? Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> we needed an assistant? We did. We did. <laughs> that's it? Yeah, that's it. All, all this Finally. Time. <laughs> right next one back to some real shit yeah okay cool circulatory problems well the rule of the artery is supreme sort of what you were talking about we talk about that so that's the one maybe aspect of osteopathy which is quite obscure in a way and the thing we have to remember as humans we are 70% fluid, basically. And there's a very interesting physical property of fluids. They are incompressible. You, that's why you go on a hydraulic bench uh, on my, in my practice. And then the osteopath or the chiropractor or the physio pumps you up with a hydraulic in a way, okay? Yeah, and if it was an air pump, it would not happen like that, okay? The main thing with fluid, and that's what gives you your tensile property in a way because you're mostly fluid so you got like a high pressure fluid system which is your arterial system you got a low pressure a blood system which is your venous system and then you got like a very low pressure system which is your lymphatic system and then you got a part which is actually bathing your central nervous system which is called the cerebrospinal fluid basically okay and that's about it, really. And so as osteopaths, 
let's say you've possibly noticed it's uh, August. Lots of people are on the beach and they are 30 centimeters from each other. So they should be able to notice that most people have got varicose veins on their left leg, much more than their right leg. That's quite an interesting thing. And that's exactly the one thing with the blood supply. Your left common iliac vein is actually much longer than the right one because your vena cava is on the right side of your abdomen. Okay? Um, so it's actually a low pressure system. And if you had a little ptosis of your gut, for example, your inferior mesenteric artery, potentially, or and maybe part of your bowel, if it was really constipated or something like that, it would actually push a bit more and apply pressure on the low pressure return system of your venous system of your left leg, and therefore you'll have more varicose veins, basically. Um, uh, men are going to have more varicose cells around their left testicule, because of that matter as well, because the left testicular vein drains into the left renal vein, compared to the right testicular vein, I think drains into your right common iliac artery, and your right renal vein is actually a tributary of your, uh, of your vena cava, basically. So, bizarrely, your aorta is on the left side and the odd branches of all the blood supply of your gut is there. And then the inferior mesenteric artery, if there's a ptosis of your small intestine, is going to actually pinch your left renal vein. And therefore, you get more congestion into your left testicle, basically. Anyway, so there's quite a lot about pressure, about... Uh, space occupying things. There's lots of things about dysfunction. There's lots of things about posture. There's lots of things about positive and negative partial pressures. There's different things about different body cavities and things like that, basically. Okay. So that's mechanically, if we change posturally things and if we uh, enable you to actually diminish a bit your um, thoracic kyphosis and we open up your uh, chest a little bit, your, your actual positioning of your head is going to change and the AP balance of all the musculature into your neck is going to change and therefore the blood the blood supply, especially your carotid sinus, for example. So at the branch of your common carotid, it becomes your internal and external, internal and external carotid. There's a swelling a little bit, which is a carotid sinus, and it's actually a baroreceptor. It deals with the change in pressure of at your head level when you go from standing to sitting. So you end up with orthostatic hypotension, and a lot of people who's, who are quite shrugged a bit forward with their head sticking forward Word, are more likely to have pulled that thing and therefore the signal from that baroreceptor is going to be a bit changed and they are more likely to get um, uh, orthostatic hypotension which is like another part of that circulatory problem and then we have viscerosomatic reflexes so the main thing um, there is with that the segmentation of um, the metamers, especially embryologically, you've got 
you've got different embryological layers who are actually whose blood supplies is 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 shared is shared and the nervous supply of that blood supply is actually going to be the commonality let me rephrase I think I went the wrong way. Every segment in your spine is actually providing the nervous supply to the blood supply of your muscle and your gut. The nervous supply to the blood, blood supply, supply of yeah. your muscle and your gut. And your gut, okay. It's called vasonervo... No, no. Vasonervorum or vasovasorum. Or... That's the blood supply to the blood supply. Vasonervorum is the, the, the blood supply to the nerve. But there's a nervous supply to the blood. So it must be vasonervorum, nervovasorum, or something like that. Anyway, it's a bit of a, an interesting concept. So let's say we can see if you have um, a lot of acid reflux and a lot of ulceration in your stomach, the blood supply, so you're going to have a, a gastritis, the, the, doom, the doom of gastritis. And therefore... What is gastritis? It's an inflammation of your gastrite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a, an inflammation of your gut. Especially the foregut. Uh, so it could be uh, your duodenum or it could be your stomach or and your esophagus, actually, I think. Um, and uh, when it's like that, there's actually a dilation of the blood supply to your stomach, which actually is dealing with oh, acid secretion. And the acid secretion is going to increase, which is going to irritate and inflame the lining of your stomach, which is possibly not going to be able to be neutralized when it empties by the gas, by the bile juices, which actually are very um, high in pH to neutralize the acid. And therefore, the part of the duodenum can be quite burnt as well. Okay, So you take anti-acid tablet, which actually diminishes the secretion of acid, which diminishes the possible inflammation of things. But my point is is going to have an effect on the blood supply of the muscle in your mid-back that shares the innervation of its blood supply with that part of the gut. Okay? And so on and so on. So that's a bit the whole circulatory type thing, really, in so, a way. So with circulatory problems, I'm guessing some people wouldn't necessarily come to you and be like, oh, Alexi, I have a circulatory problem and this is it. It's more the fact that people are going to come to you maybe, again, experiencing pain and balance. Mm -hmm. And then you work through whatever mm -hmm. is affecting mm -hmm. what, affecting what, affecting mm -hmm. what, and then figure out a like a, a method or an approach on how you're going to tackle the different things, I guess, in an order. That's it, that's it. So do you ever get people coming to you with something like a numbing sensation in certain parts of their body mm -hmm. and then be like, is there anything you can do mm -hmm. to help that? Well, uh, I'm, guess, I'm guessing that would fall under circulatory problems in some way. Because of the blood supply to the nerve. Mm. Yes, that's a possibility. The, the vasonervorum. Vasonervorum, exactly. And again, there's a tensile type uh, property. So you need to know about different impingement sites of, 
For if it's in the tip of your fingers, depending on which finger it is, depending on the territory it is, you know whether it's a nerve or whether it's a, it's actually the nerve root. So you know, you need to know whether it's at the neck level or if it's on the, on the path to the hand, mm. which could be into your tunnel of Guillon, just for your ulnar nerve or in your uh, carpal tunnel. A lot of people are gonna have carpal tunnel problems. So we want to decompress the carpal tunnel in order for the sling that it provides for the median nerve to be able to sling a bit better and the inflammation is not oh we talked about hydraulic again you got a dome you got a dome of, a of, a, of ligament and you got a bit of a bottom of bones and the nerve goes through if there's inflammation there it's going to tug the nerve and the nerve when you move your hand is going to be pulled and then its blood supply is going to diminish and then the conductivity of your nerve is going to change and therefore you're going to end up with spins and needles <laughs> so it's it's a variation on the same theme yeah all the time really in a way okay it, it really is isn't it very much so. i mean uh i guess arthritis could be quite nicely put under circ circulatory problems i guess well if it's that. a rheumatoid problem yes there's definitely a dilation of the blood supply around the joint which actually causes the inflammation locally but for the osteoarthritis it's a little bit less straightforward in terms of the circulatory thing. But you get extra tension into the muscle group, which actually moves the joint in a way. Okay, And therefore, you get maybe a bit more um, um, fluid retention into your extremities or something like that, really, in a way. Okay. I thought you said you only wanted three minutes for each. <laughs> yeah. I wish, again... There's too much to talk about and then maybe is. I divert a bit and it's difficult to really stick to the one thing, but there's so many, you have to pull from so many places really in a way. And I think it's quite nice though, because it, because obviously we're trying to build up your conditions pages on Euphoria uh, Osteopaths website. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be quite nice to end up having, you know, a number of different ways and a different, uh, like you, you mentioned, obviously like hip and shoulder and tennis elbow a little bit on, mm -hmm. on the first one. Um, and then on this one, talking about a couple of different mm -hmm. things. I think it's quite nice to have those examples mm -hmm. because uh, you obviously know what people are like and I know what I'm like when I'm quite like fixed state of attention about something. And if mm -hmm. I came onto your website mm -hmm. or got, uh, you know, referred to you, I I would probably still come and see you, but if someone refers me to you and mm -hmm. I don't see that you explicitly say something about something to do with what I'm experiencing, mm -hmm. then I'm probably going to be maybe a little mm -hmm. bit put off. But Little knowledge is dangerous. Mm. And I think that's where Google is a bit the problem as mm. well. So the main problem with pain and discomfort, because I see mostly people who are in pain, that's the thing really, in a way. And the main problem with pain is like a, a, a fixed state of attention, but it's an internal a negative internal fixed state of attention. And that's a bit the tricky part, really, because it's, we, we, it's associated with different personality traits and neuroticism is one of those, basically. And therefore, you're going to look at the tissue causing pain. Um, and, and I think that's really, that's a dead end. It's a booby trap, in a way. So... Arthritis, you're 74, what do you expect? The whole lot, bang, that's it, there's no... What does it do to people? How much hope have you got then? Oh, well, you got another 15 years to live. You might as well shut the fuck up and then die. Because <laughs> you're 74, so you're going to completely stop to a halt. 
Because that's what everybody does. Do they really? <laughs> so it's, it's, those belief systems are completely stifling us in a way. Mm. And, and, and people in position of power have to be very cautious about how they talk to people and how they actually, you know, because people come to see you and they're in a very strange state of attention as well. So they're a little bit in a hypnotic state as well. And uh, you got your, uh, your uh, white coat and you got all your books and your uh, wall of fame and your skeleton and the lot. It's a bit like uh, it's going at the theater in a way, okay? Oh, that's what we call the, where we do the surgery, actually. That's quite strange. Anyway. And yeah, that's it really. So you have to really choose your words really, really well. You have to choose your word very well. And the problem is uh, having to reframe people's view of their condition when they've had an X-ray. Oh, yeah, but I've got an X-ray and it shows I've got wear and tear. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. It's a, it's a radiographic diagnosis. No doubt. For, for osteoarthritis, you need a diminish in the joint space. You need to have osteophytic growth. You need to have subchondral cyst. You and on, and on, and on. Okay? There's, a, there's quite a lot of changes radiographically who makes you do early wear and tear or really full-blown osteoarthritis. No doubt. But how, help, how helpful is it for you as a patient to know you got osteoarthritis. Especially if you're being told, well, you're just an old fart. What do you expect? That's your lot until you die. <laughs> when actually it's a bit like, well, maybe it's time to look at how is it you manage the joints that is the problem, really. What is it you do with it? How is it you think about what you do with it? How is it you look at the whole lot to try to dampen a bit the thing? There are a lot of people out there who have osteoarthritis and they don't have any pain. And they don't even know that they've got osteoarthritis. That's it, that's it, because they have not had an X-ray. And sometimes it's just an incidental finding on top of it. Mm. And a lot of people have got an awful lot of pain and they don't have any osteoarthritis. And a lot of people have got a lot of pain and they got osteoarthritis. And a lot of people that don't have any pain and they don't have any osteoarthritis. Yes, of course. Yes, yes, that as well. I think uh, I hope I've not forgotten anybody in a way. Okay, <laughs> but the main thing, the diagnosis is not helpful at all for for the patient. It's the same with um, on the human Gibbons course last week. They were mm -hmm. saying the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And then I was actually um, with Isabel's family over the weekend, and her stepbrother is a mental health nurse. Mm -hmm. With a, uh, he was like the first mental health nurse that I've spoken to who doesn't hail the whole system. He, he's he's a bit like well it's a bit it's a bit messed up it's not actually working particularly well but you know it's better than nothing, nothing. and mm -hmm. there's a lot of good people in there doing their jobs no doubt and he he was saying the exact same thing again like what what benefit do people think that they they are realistically getting from their diagnosis of you bipolar know, like bi yeah and they were saying that on the course you know one of the guys there uh, called Alexis. Also had a needle phobia, and De Denise uh, rewound it. Oh, good. Yeah, it was really funny. Um, his son, I think, was uh, autistic. They got him diagnosed. And then he had CBT uh, therapy, or like, what was the? There's two types, isn't there? Behavioral therapy, cognitive. No, behavioral I think it was like tra trauma CBT or something like that. Mm -hmm. There's two types of CBT, and it was one of those. 
And he was saying, you know, we're really happy that we got the diagnosis. So then we, all of a sudden we got hit with the fact, well, what, what, what happens now? And then he got some therapy and he actually had to stop it because he, he saw there was such bad deterioration of, of his son. And it's just quite, it's like such a big eye opener for me. Like I, again, talking to Isabel today in the park about how I've gone to the doctor had a couple of tests, sure enough, I'm healthy as anything on, on those tests and I'm probably, I'm going to go back. But at the same time, the amount of times that you said to me, there's this, this and this that you need to do to address some imbalances, then you probably need to breathe more than you, you are. Maybe just try those things for a prolonged period of time and see what happens. And every single time, even though I think I know that it's probably better not to just, you know, maybe hope and I just definitely what I was doing hope that the doctor's going to f- f- be like oh you've got this massive illness we'll just fix it and it's fine mm-hmm. it's not it's like still a slip into mm-hmm. that sort of path of putting the, like an external locus of focus as, as you like to say and mm-hmm. yeah an itis or a condition often doesn't really give anyone anything more than other than a label to fit in mm-hmm. with what they've got and the potential for secondary gain and the potential to belong to a Facebook group with everybody on it who have the same condition and who tends to justify the fact that you can't do things, who tends to help you to talk to others. Oh, yeah, but you don't see my depression and people who are depressed. And yeah, well, it's not super helpful. It's helping people maybe to maybe deal with it themselves, really. But or deal with it in light of what they think others tend to look about it and, and think about it when actually it doesn't really matter too much. It's not sometimes very, very helpful. Well, it's like you were talking earlier about uh, uh, asthma mm-hmm. and that's something that obviously I, I went uh, to the doctors all the time when I was younger for asthma mm-hmm. and I even remember being diagnosed with it and remember my dad getting annoyed at the doctors for not diagnosing me earlier because mm-hmm. he said that I had it from birth and it was only when I was like four or five or something mm-hmm. maybe a little bit older that I was diagnosed and from what you were saying and from what I now believe or know or whatever it's quite it's quite nice to have a few different tools to to, to tackle something it's quite nice to mm-hmm. think well you know I do have access to controlling my breathing and I do have access to you know cardiovascular exercise and a few mm-hmm. other bits and pieces mm-hmm. and Ventolin and, and, and Ventolin yeah. and I also have the choice of whether to smoke or not yeah. and maybe I shouldn't mm-hmm. at all but maybe that's that, a, a bad use of a tool that is actually helping you to breathe, but that's a different story. Exactly. In a way. So I think sometimes it's, that's the main problem. There's a, a secondary gain here, or there's a little bit of a positive out of a, out of a, neg, a quite negative behavior. So the main thing about va- why is it there's so many people vaping is because they use their breathing to distress, really. And vaping is going to create popcorn um, lungs, smoking cigarette causes cancer, all sorts of things really. There's autoimmune problem with vaping because of the little mycelium in the, in the, well, blood supply and the capillary bed and things like that really. But it's nonetheless a way of actually breathing and controlling your heart breath. <sighs> That's what you do when you smoke, basically. So actually, you do 7-Eleven when you smoke. But you could do it with 
euh, pain. Mm. And then you might not have a cancer lollipop mm. to do it really. But yeah, let's not maybe vilify too many people who actually smoke because and not to say that it's actually a good thing because it helps them to distress and actually it helps them to breathe because actually he, on a long term basis there's uh, definitely some it's completely 100% 110% sure that there's a correlation between smoking and cancer for sure full stop mm. but, um, for, but for me that goes back to what we're talking about pre-podcast mm -hmm which is that anything that is enjoyable done to excess is an addiction. And then I believe that some of the, the physical issues and I'm sure mental issues, of course, mental issues that I have are off the back of me doing things that were enjoyable to excess to the point where it was an, an addiction. And now I have to try and figure out how to address some of those things that have... Welcome to being a human. Yeah. <laughs> and and so with the smoking, so there are people like we've spoken about this before on the podcast, I think, mm -hmm. where that get into their nineties or even hundreds and they smoked all their all their life. Mm -hmm. But they are the exception. They are the, they are exception. the exception. But obviously, there's mm -hmm. an, there's a thought, or at least I have a thought behind that, which is that a lot of the time when people are doing things to excess and to an a, a, an addiction and I'm not saying that these old people that survived while smoking weren't addicted mm -hmm. but I'm saying that that addiction then becomes so intense that actually doing the thing then becomes even more stressful rather than it mm -hmm. not being stressful mm -hmm. whereas potentially there is an argument to say that people who li live until they're 105 and they smoked all, all their life mm -hmm. all of their retirement or whatever m maybe every cigarette wasn't more stressful mm -hmm. and maybe their addiction to that their relationship mm -hmm. to that addiction mm -hmm. maybe wasn't as stressful as most other people's is mm -hmm. or their genetic predisposition to the type of cancer mm -hmm. that uh, uh, smoking is going to create it was not there and therefore they had the lucky the lucky card <laughs> in a way so a jail free card. that's it that's it that's it smoke yourself not to death mm. card <laughs> great So, but it's, you don't know until you're 105 and you smoked all your life. That's the main problem, really. And it's, anyway. prob it's probably better to hedge your bets on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's, there's definitely people who have lung cancer who never smoked. So, yes, figure that out a bit as well. So, should we do one more? Yeah. Cramp. Cramp. Okay, cramp is interesting thing because again, it focuses your attention on the painful muscle mm. who's actually cramping. It's pretty hard not to. Pretty hard not to kind of focus on that mm. really. And the problem is again, uh, muscle don't work in isolation. They work in trains. In trains or, or, or chains. Chains and trains and there's agonist and antagonist and there's all sorts of interesting things. There's electrolytes as well. So the fact that and I, I was going to say people, I suggest to some people to stretch their quadriceps and their hip flexors. A lot of the time they got hamstring cramp when they actually stretch their quadriceps. So the eccentrically loaded muscle tend to get some slack by actually stretching the concentrically loaded uh, muscle. The antagonist who's eccentrically loaded is going to have some slack. And the way for that muscle to get the slack is actually to cramp. 
because that's really a good way to actually contract all the muscle fibers to try to shorten the muscle who's been long for a long time. Okay. And then it's so much sense why I have why I've been having. And then amount. there's electrolytes. There's a different thing. So in terms of there's calcium. That's a very big one because as much as you're told to actually lick the wall, which is white, and and eat some milk when because it's white, so there must be it must be good for bones because bones are white, you know. Bones are white, so everything chalk is very good because it's full of calcium. Everything white is good for bones. Everything that is white is good for bones, um, which is quite an interesting concept. Um, heuristic. Heuristic, yes, that's it, that's it. Uh, if you're not lactose intolerant, and uh, anyway, that's another story. But um, yeah, calcium is really quite an important thing because calcium is uh, one thing that does muscular contraction, basically. There's magnesium as well. There's different other electrolytes. So you might lack certain salts, basically, and that predispose you to having cramp. Then there's a bit the blood supply again to the muscle, which tends to provide you with the cal excess calcium because the calcium from your bone is being eaten up and released into, into the bloodstream for you to be able to do muscular contraction. And when it's used, it's put back into the bone with another little thing that patches it. Okay. Osteoblast and osteoclast activity. So there's hormonal things as well. So all that is estrogen driven a little bit so certain time of the life certain half of the population is actually more subject to cramps as well because of that so yeah cramp is another interesting thing but again that's uh, an external a negative internal focus of attention in a way, okay? That's pain again. And the pain, if you got your calf that, that cramps, you want to try to focus on your calf. And yes, to release the cramp by stretching it a little bit, you tend to loosen the whole thing. But um, maybe by working at, on your shin and your uh, tibialis anterior, maybe the dynamic between your calf and your shin will be a bit better and it'll be less likely to actually cramp. But that's another story. It's a bit more functional thing. Cramps are interesting, interesting concept, really. So if someone comes to you with a cramp mm -hmm. and you, like, what, what, or, or they, I guess it's more if they suffer from chronic cramps, right? I guess it would be people mm -hmm. who have cramps mm -hmm. on a regular basis. All the more. time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if they came to you, what would, is, is there like a, I'm guessing you'd treat them mm -hmm. and try to mm -hmm. address any antagonist muscles that are short and long. That's it, that's it. That. To try to diminish the discrepancy in length, yeah. And then is the there anything different, any other advice you'd give them other than giving them some other tools? That's to, it, that's again, it. Epsom salt baths, mm. things like that, but depending on if they're on blood pressure medication, all the rest, because you're, the thing is people who tend to have muscular imbalance, bizarrely, their muscles tend to be quite tense in a way. And you need to remember part of your blood uh, system has got muscles. So you're the, the diastol we, we want people to have a quite low diastolic uh, pressure, basically. 
because the higher their diastolic pressure, the more likely they've got arteriosclerosis, or the more likely they've got a, a actual residual muscular tone into the wall of the artery, basically. And oh, they got muscular tension as well with big muscles. So it's a bit the same thing. It's another mesoderm kind of derivative, a little really. So you have to be a bit careful if they are actually on blood pressure medication with uh, electrolytes because the more salts you kind of ingest or uh, is subject to, the more water you need to, the more fluid you need to retain in order to try to dilute it, to keep your homeostatic uh, balance. And therefore, the more maybe you hold fluid and the more fluid there is in the pipe system and the more pressure goes up in a way, okay? So it's a bit defeating the purpose in a way, okay? So you have to be a bit careful with certain advice like that, but yeah, Epsom salts, there's magnesium sprays as well for people on their legs or things, for restless legs and cramps, it's actually quite good. Lots of bits and bobs, there's coenzyme Q10, all sorts of things like certain... And the enzymes, muscular enzymes are quite interesting. And a bit of uh, blood supply to it, healthy blood supply. So maybe to advise them to go for a nice little walk or something like that, or not to buy a dog, or, uh, or hounds, or husky, slade <laughs> type thing. But you can maybe go for a walk and just like move things about and then the blood supply to the muscle gets a bit more per the muscle gets a bit more perfused and some of the metabolic waste are actually taken away good sleep is another part of it but obviously when you got cramps sometimes it's at night and not so easy it, it doesn't really help with your sleep and all those kind of things it's, it's a fine balance i think that's One of the podcasts we did was about all the allostasis and uh, homeostasis and the whole kind of resili resilience to stress and things like that, really. So we need to change to stay the same in a changing environment. And that, that's quite interesting and appealing appealing uh, concept. The, the fact that we need to change some of our behaviors have to change a little bit for the homeostasis to... Homeostasis is how we are the same. Your, the pH of your blood can't vary an awful lot. <laughs> Actually, very little. Okay? And that's homeostasis. So you need to stay the same. And environment changes all the time, basically. So that's the problem, really. Environment changes both in and out of our control. Yeah, we put ourselves in new in new situation in new situation, situation by changing our behavior, and then the environment changes again. But we perceive it to have changed in a positive fashion, and we get a bit more hopeful about how we're going to be able to iterate that game a bit longer in time, basically, until it changes again, and we have to change tack a little bit. That's the problem with corals at the moment; they don't have any muscles, so they're not, they're not able to play the game. Well, they're not able to actually change to stay the same in a changing environment, basically. Okay. Compared to their colleagues, the uh, jellyfish, who are actually proliferating like mad at the moment. There's an awful lot of jellyfish, which actually are actually cutting part of the uh, ecosystem, especially on a plankton uh, level. And therefore, a lot of fish aren't having enough things to eat. And therefore, less crustaceans, less fish, less things, because there's too many jellyfish, basically. So one 
who's actually able to move around, who's been there for a long time, 700 million years. And the other one who's been there for 700 million years but stays in the same place, he's not actually able to move that much. He's uh, not really fending really well. And bizarrely, there's lots of bizarrely or thankfully, we've got lots of researchers who are actually looking at different type of uh, corals and those who have actually the ability to cope with change in temperature a bit more drastic and things like that really. So as part of that coral bleaching, some corals are actually uh, not bleaching as well, as much and therefore maybe they, if we were to actually uh, help the rest of the coral to actually by actually propagating those strain of coral, maybe we'll have, because maybe they've got a genetic ability and a breadth of how much temperature they can contain with. It's really quite interesting. Science is awesome. Humans are great. They do one poop and then they make a, a burger out of it in the end. <laughs> brilliant. That does sound brilliant. Yeah. I think we should go and have steak and salad. Mm. And see some moving things in the sky. Ah, yes, that's it, that's it. The Perseid meteor shower tonight is at its peak. So that's going to be really bon. interesting. Cool, let's end it there then. Yes, Thank that's you it. Very much. More, more next time. Oui, oui. Thank you.